Chapter 7, The Second Attempt, Part 2, of The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Green. The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922, by various authors. Chapter 7 by George Finch, Part 2. On May 24th, Captain Noel, Tejbir, Jeffrey Bruce, and I, all using oxygen, went up to the North Coal, 23,000 feet. Bent on a determined attack, we camped there for the night. Morning broke fine and clear, though somewhat windy, and at 8 o'clock we set off up the long snow slopes leading toward the northeast shoulder of Mount Everest. Twelve porters carrying oxygen cylinders, provisions for one day, and camping gear. An hour and a half later, Bruce, Tejbir, and I followed, and in spite of the fact that each bore a load of over 30 pounds, which was more than the average weight carried by the porters, we overtook them at a height of about 24,500 feet. They greeted our arrival with their usual cheery, broad grins, but no longer did they regard oxygen as a foolish man's whim. One and all appreciated the advantages of what they naively chose to call English air, leaving them to follow. We went on, hoping to pitch our camp somewhere above 26,000 feet, but shortly after one o'clock, the wind freshened up rather offensively, and it began to snow. Our altitude was 25,500 feet, some 500 feet below where we had hoped to camp, but we looked round immediately for a suitable camping site, as the porters had to return to the North Coal that day, and persistence in proceeding further would have run them unjustifiably into danger. This I would under no circumstances do, for I felt responsible for these cheerful, smiling, willing men, who looked up to their leader and placed him in the complete trust of little children. As it was, the margin of safety secured by pitching camp where we did, instead of at a higher elevation, was none too wide, for before the last porter had departed downwards, the weather had become very threatening." A cheerful spot in which they find a space to pitch a tent, it was not. But though I climbed a couple of hundred feet or so further up the ridge, nothing more suitable was to be found. Remembering that a wind is felt more severely on the windward side of a ridge than on the crest, a possible position to the west of the ridge was negatived in favor of one on the very backbone. The lee side was bare of any possible camping place within reasonable distance. Our porters arrived at 2 p.m. and at once all began to level off the little platform where the tent was soon pitched on the very edge of the tremendous precipices falling away to the east Rongbuk and main Rongbuk glaciers, over 4,000 feet below. Within 20 minutes, the porters were scurrying back down the broken, rocky ridge toward the snow slopes leading to the North Coal, singing as they went snatches of their native hillside ditties. What splendid men! Having seen the last man safely off, I looked at the security of the guy ropes holding down the tent, and then joined Bruce and Tejbir inside. It was snowing hard. Tiny, minute spicules driven by the wind penetrated everywhere. It was bitterly cold, so we crawled into our sleeping bags and, gathering round us all available clothing, huddled up together as snugly as was possible. With the help of a solidified spirit, we melted snow and cooked a warm meal, which imparted some small measure of comfort to our chilled bodies. 
a really hot drink was not procurable for the simple reason that at such an altitude water boils at so low a temperature that one can immerse the hand in it without fear of being scalded. Over a postprandium cigarette, Bruce and I discussed our prospects of success, knowing that no man can put forth his best effort unless his confidence is an established fact. The trend of my contribution to the conversation was chiefly, of course, we shall get to the top. After sunset, the storm rose to a gale, a term I used deliberately. Terrific gusts tore at our tent with such ferocity that the ground sheet with its human burden was frequently lifted up off the ground. On these occasions, our combined efforts were needed to keep the tent down and prevent its being blown away. Although we had blocked up the very few small openings in the tent to the best of our powers, long before midnight we were all thickly covered in a fine frozen spindrift that somehow or other was blown in upon us, insinuating its way into sleeping bags and clothing, there to cause acute discomfort. Sleep was out of the question. We dared not relax our vigilance. Forever and again, all our strength was needed to hold the tent down and to keep the flaps of the door, stripped of their fastenings by a gust that had caught us unawares, from being torn open. We fought for our lives, realizing that once the wind got our little shelter into its ruthless grip, it must inevitably be hurled, with us inside it, down onto the East Rongbuck Glacier, thousands of feet below. And one of my companions in the tent? To me, who had certainly passed his novitiate in the hardships of mountaineering, the situation was more than alarming. About Tejbir, I had no concern. He placed complete confidence in his sahibs, and the ready grin never left his face. But it was Bruce's first experience of mountaineering, and how the ordeal would affect him, I did not know. I might have spared myself all anxiety. Throughout the whole adventure, he bore himself in a manner that would have done credit to the finest of veteran mountaineers and returned my confidence with a cheerfulness that rang too true to be counterfeit. By one o'clock on the morning of the 26th, the gale reached its maximum. The wild flapping of the canvas made a noise like that of machine gun fire. So deafening was it that we could scarcely hear each other speak. Later, there came interludes of comparative lull, succeeded by bursts of storm more furious than ever. During such lulls, we took it in turn to go outside to tighten up the slackened guy ropes and also succeeded in tying down the tent more firmly with our alpine rope. It was impossible to work in the open for more than three or four minutes at a stretch. So profound was the exhaustion induced by this brief exposure to the fierce cold wind. But the alpine rope taking some of the strain, we enjoyed a sense of security which, though probably only illusory, allowed us all a few sorely needed moments of rest. Dawn broke bleak and chill. The snow had ceased to fall, but the wind continued with unabated violence. Once more, we had to take it in turns to venture without and tighten up the guy ropes, and to try to build on the windward side of the tent a small wall of stones as an additional protection. The extreme exhaustion and chill produced in the body as a result of each of these little excursions were sufficient to indicate that, until the gale had spent itself, there could be no hope of either advance or retreat. As the weary morning hours dragged on, we believed we could detect a slackening off of the storm. 
and I was thankful, for I was beginning quietly to wonder how much longer human beings could stand the strain. We prepared another meal. The dancing flames of the spirit stove caused me anxiety bordering on anguish, lest the tent, a frail shelter between life and death, should catch fire. At noon, the storm once again regained its strength and rose to unsurpassed fury. A great hole was cut by a stone in one side of the tent, and our situation thus unexpectedly became more desperate than ever. But we carried on, making the best of our predicament until at one o'clock, the wind dropped suddenly from a blustering gale to nothing more than a stiff breeze. Now was the opportunity for retreat to the safety of the North Coal Camp, but I wanted to hang on and try our climb on the following day. Very cautiously and tentatively, I broached my wish to Bruce, fearful lest the trying experience of the last 24 hours had undermined his keenness for further adventure. Once again, I may have spared myself all anxiety. He jumped at the idea, and when our new plans were communicated to Tejbir, the only effect upon him was to broaden his already expansive grin. It was a merry little party that gathered round to a scanty evening meal cooked with the last of our fuel. The meal was meager for the simple reason that we had catered for only one day's short rations, and we were now very much on starvation diet. We had hardly settled down for another night when, about 6 p.m., voices were heard outside. Our unexpected visitors were porters who, anxious as to our safety, had left the North Coal that afternoon when the storm subsided. With them, they brought thermos flasks of hot beef tea and tea provided by the thoughtful Noel. Having accepted these most gratefully, we sent the porters back without loss of time. The night began critically. We were exhausted by our previous experiences and through lack of sufficient food. Tejbir's grin had lost some of its expanse. On the face of Jeffrey Bruce, courageously cheerful as ever, was a strained, drawn expression that I did not like. Provoked, perhaps, by my labors outside the tent, a dead, numbing cold was creeping up my limb, a thing I had only once before felt, and to the serious of which I was fully alive. Something had to be done. Like an inspiration came the thought of trying the effect of oxygen— we hauled an apparatus and cylinders into the tent, and giving it the air of a joke, we took doses all around. Tejbir took his medicine reluctantly, but with relief, I saw his face brighten up. The effect on Bruce was visible in his rapid change of expression. A few minutes after the first deep breath, I felt the tingling sensation of returning life and warmth to my limbs. We connected up the apparatus in such a way that we could breathe a small quantity of oxygen throughout the night. The result was marvelous. We slept well and warmly. Whenever the tube delivering the gas fell out of Bruce's mouth as he slept, I could see him stir uneasily in the uric greenish light of the moon as it filtered through the canvas. Then half unconsciously replacing the tube, he would once more fall into a peaceful slumber. There is little doubt that it was the use of oxygen which saved our lives during this second night in our high camp. Before daybreak, we were up and proceeded to make ready for our climb. Putting on our boots was a struggle. Mine I had taken to bed with me, and a quarter of an hour's striving and tugging sufficed to get them on. But Bruce's and Tejbir's were frozen solid, and it took them more than an hour to mold them into shape by holding them over lighted candles. Shortly after six, we assembled outside, 
Some little delay was incurred in arranging the rope and our loads, but at length, at 6.30 a.m., soon after the first rays of the sun struck the tent, we shouldered our bundles and set off. What with cameras, thermos bottles, and oxygen apparatus, Bruce and I each carried well over 40 pounds. Tejbir, with two extra cylinders of oxygen, shouldered a burden of about 50 pounds. Our scheme of attack was to take Tejbir with us as far as the northeast shoulder, there to relieve him of his load and send him back. The weather was clear. The only clouds seemed so far off as to presage no evil, and the breeze, though intensely cold, was bearable. But it soon freshened up, and before we had gone more than a few hundred feet, the cold began to have its effect on Tejbir's sturdy constitution, and he showed signs of wavering. Bruce's eloquent flow of Garimuki, however, managed to boost him up to the altitude of 26,000 feet. There, he collapsed entirely, sinking face downwards on the rocks and crushing beneath him the delicate instruments of his oxygen apparatus. I stormed at him for thus maltreating it, while Bruce exhorted him for the honor of his regimen to struggle on. But it was all in vain. Tejbir had done his best, and he has every right to be proud of the fact that he has climbed to a far greater height than any other native. We pulled him off his apparatus, and relieving him of some cylinders, cheered him up sufficiently to start him with enough oxygen on his way back to the high camp, there to await our return. We had no compunction about letting him go alone, for the ground was easy and he could not lose his way, the tent being in full view below. After seeing him safely off and making good progress, we loaded up Tejbir's cylinders and, in view of the easy nature of the climbing, mutually agreed to dispense with the rope and thus enable ourselves to proceed more rapidly. Climbing not very steep and quite easy rocks, and passing two almost level places affording ample room for some future high camp, we gained an altitude of 26,500 feet. By this time, however, the wind, which had been steadily rising, had acquired such force that I considered it necessary to leave the ridge and continue our ascent by traversing out across the great northern face of Mount Everest, hoping by doing so to find more shelter from the icy blasts. It was not easy to come to this decision, because I saw that between us and the shoulder, the climbing was all plain sailing and presented no outstanding difficulty. Leaving the ridge, we began to work out into the face. For the first few yards, the going was sufficiently straightforward, but presently the general angle became much steeper, and our trials were accentuated by the fact that the stratification of the rocks was such that they shelved outward and downward, making the securing of adequate footholds difficult. We did not rope, however. I knew that the longer we remained unroped, the more time we would save, a consideration of vital importance. But as I led out over these steeply sloping, evilly smooth slabs, I carefully watched Bruce to see how he would tackle the formidable task with which he was confronted on this, his first mountaineering expedition. He did his work splendidly and followed steadily and confidently as if he were quite an old hand at the game. Sometimes the slabs gave place to snow, treacherous, powdery stuff with a thin, hard, deceptive crust that gave the appearance of compactness. Little reliance could be placed upon it, and it had to be treated with great care. 
Sometimes we found ourselves crossing steep slopes of scree that yielded and shifted downwards with every tread. Very occasionally, in the midst of our exacting work, we were forced to indulge in a brief rest in order to replace an empty cylinder of oxygen by a full one. The empty ones were thrown away, and as each bumped its way over the precipice and the good steel clanged like a church bell at each impact, we laughed aloud at the thought that, there goes another five pounds off our backs. Since leaving the ridge, we had not made much height, although we seemed to be getting so near our goal. Now and then we consulted the aneroid barometer, and its readings encouraged us on. 27,000 feet. Then we gave up traversing and began to climb diagonally upwards toward a point in this lofty northeast ridge, midway between the shoulder and the summit. Soon afterwards, an accident put Bruce's oxygen apparatus out of action. He was some 20 feet below me, but struggled gallantly upwards as I went to meet him, and after connecting him onto my apparatus and so renewing his supply of oxygen, we soon traced the trouble and effected a satisfactory repair. The barometer here recorded a height of 27,300 feet. The highest mountain visible was Choi Oyu, which is just short of 27,000 feet. We were well above it and could look across it into the dense clouds beyond. The Great West Peak of Everest, one of the most beautiful sights to be seen from down in the Rongbok Valley, was hidden, but we knew that our standpoint was nearly 2,000 feet above it. Everest itself was the only mountaintop which we could see without turning our gaze downward. We could look across into clouds which lay at some undefined distance behind the northeast shoulder, a clear indication that we were only a little, if any, below its level. Pumori, an imposing ice-bound pyramid, 23,000 feet high, I sought it first in vain. So far were we above it that it had sunk into an insignificant little ice bump by the side of the Rongbok Glacier. Most of the other landmarks were blotted out by masses of ominous yellow-hued clouds swept from the west in the wake of an angry storm wind. The point we reached is unmistakable even from afar. We were standing on a little rocky ledge just inside an inverted V of snow, immediately below the great belt of reddish-yellow rock, which cleaves its way almost horizontally through the otherwise greenish-black slabs of the mountain. Though 1,700 feet below, we were well within a half-mile of the summit, so close indeed that we could distinguish individual stones on a little patch of scree lying just beneath the highest point. Ours were truly the tortures of Tantalus, for, weak from hunger and exhausted by that nightmare struggle for life in our high camp, we were in no fit condition to proceed. Indeed, I knew that if we were to persist in climbing on, even if only for another 500 feet, we should not both get back alive. The decision to retreat, once taken, no time was lost and fearing lest another accidental interruption in the oxygen supply might lead to a slip-up on the part of either one of us, we roped together. It was midday. At first we returned in our tracks, but later found better going by aiming to strike the ridge between the northeast shoulder and the north coal at a point above where we had left it in the morning. Progress was more rapid, though. Great caution was still necessary. Shortly after 2 p.m., we struck the ridge and there reduced our burdens to a minimum by dumping four oxygen cylinders. 
The place will be easily recognized by future explorers. Those four cylinders are perched against a rock at the head of the one and only large snow-filled couloir running right up from the head of the East Rongbuck Glacier to the ridge. The clear weather was gone. We plunged down the easy broken rocks through thick mist driven past us from the west by a violent wind. For one small mercy, we were thankful. No snow fell. We reached our high camp in barely half an hour, and such are the vagaries of Everest moods that in this short time the wind had practically dropped. Tejbir lay snugly wrapped up in all three sleeping bags, sleeping the deep sleep of exhaustion. Hearing the voices of the porters on their way up to bring down our kit, we woke him up, telling him to await their arrival and to go down with them. Bruce and I then proceeded on our way, met the ascending porters, and passed on, greatly cheered by their bright welcomes and encouraging smiles. But the long descent, coming as it did on top of a hard day's work, soon began to find out our weakness. We were deplorably tired and could no longer move ahead with our accustomed vigor. Knees did not always bend and unbend as required. At times they gave way altogether and forced us, staggering, to sit down. But eventually we reached the broken snows of the North Coal and arrived in camp there at 4 p.m. A craving for food, to the lack of which our weakness was mainly due, was all that animated us. Hot tea and a tin of spaghetti were soon forthcoming, and even this little nourishment refreshed us and renewed our strength to such an extent that three-quarters of an hour later we were ready to set off for Camp 3. An invaluable addition to our little party was Captain Noel, the indefatigable photographer of the expedition, who had already spent four days and three nights on the North Coal. He formed our rear guard and nursed us safely down the steep snow and ice slopes onto the almost level basin of the glacier below. Before 5.30 p.m., only 40 minutes after leaving the coal, we reached Camp 3. Since midday from our highest point, we had descended over 6,000 feet, but we were quite finished. That evening we dined well, four whole quails truffled in pâté de foie gras, followed by nine sausages, left me asking for more. The last I remember of that long day was going to sleep, warm in the depths of our wonderful sleeping bag, with the remains of a tin of toffee tucked away in the crook of my elbow. Next morning showed that Bruce's feet were sorely frostbitten. I had practically escaped, but the cold had penetrated the half-inch thick soles of my boots and three pairs of heavy woolen socks, and four small patches of frostbite hampered me at first in my efforts to walk. Bruce was piled onto a sledge, and I journeyed with him as his fellow passenger. Willing porters dragged us down until the surface of the glacier became so rough as to impose too great a strain on our slender conveyance with its double burden. Our attack upon Mount Everest had failed. The great mountain, with its formidable array of defensive weapons, had won. But if the body had suffered, the spirit was still whole. Reaching a point whence we obtained our last close view of the great unconquered goddess mother of the snows, Jeffrey Bruce bade his somewhat irreverent adieu with, Just you wait, old thing. You'll be for it soon. Words that still are expressive of my own sentiments. End of chapter 7, part 2. Recording by Lisa Green.